We do worship you. We thank you for the grace and gift of this day. Holy Spirit, as we gather, I just want to pray that by your power, each one of us would have a fresh encounter with you. That we'd leave here knowing something about you or seeing something about you we hadn't seen before. And we do say thank you. Would you increase our gratitude? Would it well, in up, well up in us this morning as we consider you, Jesus? And so we ask that all you will to accomplish in us would be so. And pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're willing, would you um, stay? And if, you, if you'd like to um, pray with me um, along, the words will be on the screen. We're going to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Um, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, this morning as we start, I actually want to talk a little bit first about math and music. And, um, you know, music I have loved and, and been a part of my whole life. Math, I was saying I, I really loved it until they stopped giving the answers in the back of the book. Uh, but however you feel about it, you know, come with me on a little journey. We're going to start with math. So we're in the second Sunday of Lent, right? This is that interval of time in preparation for Easter. Now, um, if anyone in the room is willing to help me, especially maybe any kids in the room, you can pull out a device, a calendar. And I want you to count how many days between Ash Wednesday, that was February 17th, up to Easter Sunday, so through Saturday, April 3rd. So that's your assignment. If you want to take it, help me out and count those days. Um, I want to say while you're looking that up a little bit about the Lenten tradition. So we know in the church that it goes back at least to 325 A.D., Okay, so there's mention of the Lenten fast out of the Council of Nicaea. Now, this was an important gathering of church leaders. Particularly, they were working to find unity uh, around Christian doctrine. So you may have heard of the Nicene Creed, the kind of statement of faith that comes out of that gathering. So we know there's a long history, centuries of church practice, Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Protestant, even our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters um, taking part in a Lenten season of preparation. And it, you know, it's in line with the story of Jesus fasting in the wilderness and preparing 40 days for his ministry. And Ali talked with us about that on Ash Wednesday, right? And that is an echo of other significant 40-day periods of preparation or 40-year periods of preparation for the people of God. So an interval of 40 days. Or is it? Who counted? Anyone count them up? How many days? 46 days. Now, I am not a mathematician, 
but there's something going on there, right? So what about those six days? Well, historically in the church, they didn't count the Sundays in Lent because uh, the Sabbath was not a day for fasting, but a day for feasting, right? So 40 days fasting and feasting, okay? When you add the feasting, 46, now you know. There's a lot of paradox like that in Lent, right? Fasting, feasting. There's also a paradox uh, around the idea of ascending and descending. So in the scriptures, uh, as Jesus and others made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, um, we know from Luke's uh, account, Jesus you know, it says he resolutely sets his face to Jerusalem. And in Matthew's gospel, where we're going to be today, Jesus says, come on, let us go up to Jerusalem. Because it's a high elevation, right? It was a city on a hill, and pilgrims would literally ascend in elevation. That's why in the Psalms, there's a lot of Psalms that have a little subtitle. It says, Song of Ascent for pilgrims going up to Jerusalem, right? So we're ascending. But we're being invited, rather, to descend, right? We're descending with Jesus. We're descending on his journey with him, ultimately, to the horrors of the cross. And as the creeds tell us, to hell itself he'll descend before he ascends in bodily resurrection and then after 40 more days to heaven, right? Ascending and descending. And we feel that, right? It, Lent actually means, the word means spring season. And in the global north where some of these traditions emerged, we too have that experience of we're coming out of the dark and damp and cold of winter. Can someone say, bless the Lord, right? We're coming out. We're ascending out to spring. But we feel the tension because we're also descending with Jesus to the darkness of the cross. Ascending and descending. So let's go to music for a second. All right. In music... There are a, there's actually a lot of math in music. I know there's musical people here, you know this. There's a lot of math in music. And one of the intervals of music that I want you to hear is this one. This is an interval called the tritone. Three whole steps make up this ominous, kind of unresolved, scary sounding tone. And this tone, this interval was called the devil's tone for some centuries. Because in the Renaissance, the 15th, 16th centuries, they believed that all music should just be beautiful. That was the only appropriate way to honor and worship God in sacred music. So it was literally, it was outlawed. You couldn't use that interval in music. Now there's all these different um, qualities to chords in music, right? So this is the major. It's cheerful, happy, uplifting. We have minor chords that are sad and mournful. We have the diminished. That's where that tritone sits right there. And then we have a similarly unresolved but more expectant augmented chord. Okay, so let me give you a little aural picture of Lent. Okay, we get a lot of visual stimulation, but let me give you an aural picture. So Monday to Saturday, we're asking you to stay here to stay in the uncomfortable, the unresolved, to descend with Jesus. And on a Sunday, you can ascend a little bit. We regather, we regroup, we worship God for what he's revealed and we go back in the next week, right? So there's this rhythm, right? 
And then in Holy Week, we come to Monday, Thursday, right? The sadness of the Last Supper, the night of sorrow in a garden. We come to Good Friday, and the horrors of the cross, the silence of Saturday, and Easter Sunday, right? That's your oral picture of Lent. Keep that in your mind, okay? Keep that in mind as we go to our text for today, because we're going to the garden. We're going to Matthew chapter 26. And if you'd like to follow along, go ahead and grab your phone or your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew's gospel. Just 11 verses today. And we're going to go to the story right after that mournful Last Supper. And in Passover, in the festival, you weren't supposed to leave the city limits of Jerusalem. And so the disciples and this entourage went and found one of their favorite spots to retreat by the Mount of Olives. It was a garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means oil press. And as we go to the garden, it's late at night with the maybe warmth and the smell of the olive groves. We're going to see Jesus pressed in this story. And I want to invite you to, to pay attention primarily to Jesus. And as you do that, I want you to notice, like, what are you thinking about? What kind of peaks questions or curiosity for you? And are, and are there any emotions? Are there any feelings that start rising for you? Or maybe even you'll feel something, a sensation in your body. And I want you to notice as you pay attention to Jesus. Starting at the 36th verse. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he took them. He took them along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Would you stay here and keep watch with me? Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He came back again. He found them sleeping 
Their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. And the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. What did you notice? Where did your mind kind of wonder? Where did you notice you felt some emotions? Or maybe even that sensation in your body. Keep a hold of that. But this morning, I want us, as we look at Jesus, to consider primarily two words from that text. And the two words are this cup. What does this moment reveal of Jesus as he considers this cup? As I'm sure you noticed just listening, there is so much in this short text that you could pay attention to or notice, right? And you could hear dozens of sermons on this and probably everyone have a unique focus point, right? You've probably heard messages maybe about the disciples and how they disappoint, right? Weary, as other gospel writers say, in their own sorrow, they can't even keep watch with Jesus. Or maybe, as Tim, he captured this so well last week, said, the innocent one voluntarily submitted. Maybe you were drawn to that phrase, not my will, but yours. For me, I read this story in wrestling. I have all these questions about how could this happen and the nature of God and, and his goodness and what does this all mean and my mind can spin. But I want us to to do the work of trying to descend with Jesus this week and with God's help to get into that story and to wonder at the experience of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And I know, I'm not naive, I know some of us in this room don't call Jesus Savior and Lord or we're wrestling with that. And we don't know exactly who Jesus says he is or who he is to us. And I want to say, would you in these next weeks, would you wrestle? And see if you might be led to make a decision in response to Jesus' invitations to you. So we're going to work together to descend throughout the week. Right? Uh, I was, our teaching team, as we've talked about this series, we've really wrestled because it just feels like there are no illustrations or anecdotes or metaphor that really just, you know, they just are justified, right? They don't quite do justice. They don't capture the heart of what we're trying to do. They fall short. And um, I felt that this week as I was preparing, but God did lead me to a memory that I want to share, and with it kind of a question that came up for me. So the memory is uh, Chris and I, my husband Chris and I, were expecting the arrival of our first child. And not 
having any sense of kind of what lay ahead, we were doing all the preparatory work and we went to all the prenatal classes at the hospital. And I, I started to notice that as the weeks went on and as I got closer and closer uh, to my due date, that I was increasingly agitated and irritable going into these nights. And I remember one night in particular, we had a wonderful instructor uh, and she'd created this beautiful display to help us relax. There was like, she lit a candle. There were like landscape scenes. There were even like stuffed animals and we could pick an object and we were supposed to like practice our relaxation and all the techniques we'd learned. And um, I just remember being like, no. And I just like clenched my body and held my breath and kind of scowled. And um, at one point, Chris kind of elbows me and he's like, Kathy, everyone can tell you're really mad right now and it's super embarrassing. <laughs> I was like, okay, not hiding it well. Um, so you know, we made it through the night and I came back to that and I was, when I had calmed down a little bit, I was like, what's going on? You know, what were those emotions and the feelings in my body? Like, what were they telling me? And I realized I was scared. I was terrified. And that's how it was all coming out, right? And I realized it wasn't so much that I was scared about the approaching physical pain of labor and delivery. It's, it's that what lay ahead was both imminent and unknown. Imminent, like this thing is happening no matter what. At some point, this is happening. Uh, and unknown, like I have no context for this. I have no experience to draw on for what this will be like. And that produced terror in me. And, and I, I looked at this Matthew story and, and other gospel accounts of Jesus in the garden and the clues there about the emotion and the physical response of anguish he was having. And I thought, what is that pointing to? So I want us to consider, might it be that the distress and the, the overwhelming trouble that Jesus describes was less about the physical pain that lay ahead at the cross and more about the imminent and unknown horror of a breach in his perfect union with Father God. A breaking, a shattering of a perfect relationship an eternally perfect union that would come as he took this cup. So I want you to hold that and consider it. See if that holds up as we look at the text. I want to talk about the cup. Because in the, in the Bible, the cup is a symbol of God's blessing and God's judgment. Right? It's both a symbol of his mercies, and his wrath. And those are not qualities that are opposed to one or another. They rather, they, they sing in a kind of harmony, right? They're both good and right in a holy God who purposed that all of creation should know shalom and experience renewal in him. And yet also totally incompatible with evil. And sin, like two magnets, right, whose forces keeping them will always keep them from connecting. They're repellent. And in the cup of blessing, I'd say this is the cup we 
most often imagine. Right? In the story just before this of that last supper. Right? Jesus, it's a holiday celebration, but it was a, it was a bittersweet one. And he took the cup and he blessed it. And then he gave it, right? He gave it to his friends and his family. And he gave it to those who would betray him and disown him. Paul describes this as a cup of blessing, right? In Corinthians, he writes, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. It's a communion. It's a blessing poured out. But Jesus in the garden, this is not that cup. If you want to turn with me, I want to go back to Isaiah where Tim had us last week. We're going to go a couple chapters earlier to Isaiah 51. that talks about this cup vividly. I'm going to start at verse 17. So the prophet writes, Awake! Awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Going to 19. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword, who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie in every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They're filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. The listener would be heartened to keep listening because the prophet will say a couple verses later, the sovereign Lord speaks and says, See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never again drink. You see that cup, it was rightfully in our hands. It's been passed to Jesus. And imagine what he experiences when he peers in. Maybe you recall, when I spoke about a month ago, I brought back an image Pastor Kevin had used about a cup, right? And this phenomenal truth that that God, because of what Christ has done, invites us to know him in the fullness of who he is. And we had a little cup, right? And And the image is that when you go to the ocean, you don't just get a little bit of the ocean in your cup. But mysteriously, all of who God is can fill us, right? Can fit in that cup. And I want you to contrast that because in this cup, in our story, it's not just that there's a little bit of evil scooped up in this cup. It's that all evil that was and is and is to come fits in there. All evil, every deception, Every act of exploitation, every degrading thought, all acts of greed, all oppression, all sins of commission and omission, all evil that was, is, and is to come is in that cup 
And you hear Jesus saying in the text, you remember what he said. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. And he does. Every drop. And in taking it in, the scriptures say that Jesus was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. J. Oswald Sanders says it this way. He says that Jesus drank a cup of wrath without mercy, that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. So go to the experience of Jesus again. He's peering into the cup. And in a sermon by that name, written by C.J. Mahaney, he says it this way, No wonder that when Jesus stares into the detestable vessel, he stumbles to the ground. That's why there is shuddering terror and deep distress for him at this moment. In the crucible of human weakness, he's brought face to face with the abhorrent reality of bearing our iniquity and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. What Jesus recoils from here is not an anticipation of the physical pain associated with crucifixion. Rather, it's a pain infinitely greater, the agony of being abandoned by Father. And Jesus, knowing the hour for his death is fast approaching, has come here in need as never before of his Father's comfort and strength. And instead, hell, utter separation from God, is thrust in his face. All week as I've been studying and writing and preparing, I just feel, um, you know, there, there's no way we can actually understand this. I don't know if we can really comprehend. But I want us to descend with Jesus anyway. Right? When I think about the very best of my relationships, like the most loving and pure and loyal and lasting, there is nothing that comes close to the perfect eternal union that God had, Father, Son, and Spirit. It doesn't even come close. And similarly, the worst, the most broken, the most painful of relationships that a human that I could experience, it comes nowhere near the agony that Jesus faced as he considered that breach of a perfect union with his father. I can't, I can't even get there. But I think Jesus wants us to descend with him nonetheless. A very wise woman in my life who I appreciated, I met with her this week and telling her how I was prepping this sermon, she asked me a great question. She said, what would you say to a room full of second graders? I was like, 
I can't even figure this out for me. <laughs> I grew adults. This is really hard. Um, but I sat with that. Uh, and I started, I had another memory come up. Um, I'm, a, I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, and when I was little, my dad pastored in these rural parishes, and we had a tradition in our liturgy of the children's sermon. Did anybody grow up with a children's sermon? A few of us. Okay. So at some point in the liturgy, there'd be a pause, and the kids would be invited to come forward and sit on the ground and hear a message that was aimed at, at their understanding. And I, as a pastor's kid, we always had to go up, which I was like, okay, you know. Sometimes we were the only kids in these small churches, too. But every now and then, we'd be lucky and there'd be some more kids. And as a parent, if you've been a parent in a church like this, you were mostly just hoping, please don't let it be my kid who picks their nose the whole time, you know, or like starts disrobing in front of the church. Um, And so you'd kind of sit and the pastor would come down and get, you know, get closer and, um, okay, room, there might be, you might ha- I might have some second graders in here, but everybody else, suspend your disbelief, you're now second graders, okay? Go with me. So if you were sitting here, you just heard a message like this, I might say, you know, not too long before Jesus, and this very sad story you just heard, there's another story where Jesus was at church too. But this day at church, something bad happened. You see, this day when Jesus came to church, there were some people who were trying to keep others from going to church. And they were trying to keep them out because they were too poor or or, or they weren't from the right family. They had the wrong color skin. They just, it wasn't right for them to come and they were keeping them out and Jesus was so mad. In fact, Jesus got so mad that he came to church and he started like throwing the furniture around and he flipped over the chairs and the pew and he like destroyed the welcome center and he threw the coloring sheets in the air and he was so mad. Would that make you a little uncomfortable? That would make, that would make me uncomfortable. But you know what's amazing? So right after Jesus shows this anger, which is pretty fair, don't you think? Right, this, he shows this anger. Guess who comes right up to Jesus? Who isn't scared of Jesus? Matthew tells us that right away, the blind and the lame, they come right to Jesus. And they're maybe most vulnerable, right? Or unsafe. They're they're sick, they have extra needs, but they're not scared. They come right to Jesus. And you know who else comes? The kids come. It says the children start singing, Hosanna! The kids come because they see something about Jesus, both in this story at church and in the garden. Do you know what they see about Jesus? Even when he shows his fair anger, they say, Jesus is so brave. Isn't Jesus so brave? And he's so, he's so full of love. And we can come to him. Today is a day of feasting. And we're going to thank Jesus that he's so brave. 
when he looked in that cup. He's so brave and so full of love. We're going to thank him. And this week, descend with him, right? Each week in both rooms, we're asking just a few core questions. We're saying, what is one way that you can kind of take something out of your life or add something in your life so that you could better journey with Jesus? And for me, and I'd commend this to you, I'm going to try to connect my considering Jesus with a physical activity. So for me, every time this week that I go up and down the stairs, I'm going to try to think of the descent of Jesus, right? Or the ascent to Jerusalem. Or maybe you are a student, you're walking the hallways between class, or walking across campus. Think about the journey of Jesus when you walk. Where every time you take a drink, would you think about this cup? The worship team can come on up. And as we're considering those things, I want to pray for you in a moment. And I also want to say, today is a feast day and we ascend. So maybe you're going to go out and play at the winter wonder. You're going to go snowshoe and play in the mud. And you can be just as with Jesus in that and consider how our God is so full of joy and so full of sorrow. Can I pray for us as we end? Let's pray. Jesus, you're so brave. And it's hard to descend and to consider our own evil, let alone what it cost you to drink it all in. But with your help, we want to be courageous to you. We want to descend with you. And however we've encountered you this morning, even when words fail us, we can still say, thank you, Jesus. So we bring our courageous thank you and love and lift it as a worship and an offering to you. Let's worship together. <clears throat>